Good afternoon, Harish. Welcome to PickPod 73. This is another of our podcasts from the 2023 uh, Pediatric Critical Care Society Conference in Edinburgh at the beginning of October. You missed this one because you you weren't there on the second day, but um, I spoke to Roddy O'Kane, who's one of the consultant neurosurgeons in Glasgow. He gave an excellent talk on the, the management of ICP and um, strategies behind that. And afterwards, I was able to sit down with him and go over some stuff. Um, he's really a very um, entertaining speaker. I, I said I, I found him quite funny when he, when he was talking. He, he must have a sense of humour as a neurosurgeon. Um, he did, and um, he significantly toned it down, I think, because uh, in the talk live, he was even more entertaining and energetic uh but managed to to control himself a little bit for us that was that was that was good yeah um he's re- he's really very pragmatic wasn't he about um how to treat icp absolutely and i think he was he wasn't completely didactic about how to manage things i think he was uh, a very practical individual in terms of how to approach a child with head injury and he didn't have all the answers did he um, he didn't, and he was very, very clear about the damage which intensive care causes, which is something we forget sometimes. We think that these patients are just sedated and sleeping, and sleeping is okay, isn't it? But we forget to make them sleep. The damage we cause with the horrible drugs we use, uh, they really do cause significant effects. So not only do we, by flattening them out completely with sedation, uh, do we produce lung problems, which we, we obviously understand because inevitably the ventilatory require, requirement tends to usually go up the longer we leave them absolutely flat. But also, I think in terms of the withdrawal symptoms, etc., and the eventual outcome, uh, I think we, we are just learning about the impact of sedation in these children. So I think that was very relevant to our practice. Putting someone in a thiopentone coma, what does that do to your actual brain cells and your recovery after that? But then it is very anxiety provoking to wake someone up because we've all seen patients who were stable and then on destabilization had catastrophic complications. I agree. I think one of the points that he made was that at the moment, all the management is determined by ICP. And uh, uh, my favorite adult paper is one by Chestnut, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine about 10 years ago. And what they did was they randomized patients to either ICP monitoring and managing these patients appropriately or just using good intensive care, blood pressure, saturations, ventilation, et cetera. And I think that there was very little difference in the, in the outcome of the two groups. And I think there is a desperate need for a perhaps a pediatric study along that line because we, at the moment, are so driven by ICP that everything else seems to be sort of uh, left behind. Um, we spoke back in Pickpot 61 with Shruti Agaral from Cambridge, who, who talked to us about about neuromonitoring and the work which she's doing on uh, on trying to work out which parameters are actually useful. It isn't interesting, isn't it? Because ICP is such an intuitive number, and yet it's a proxy. It's a proxy for flow. It's a proxy for um, oxygenation. It's a proxy for all kinds of things, and they're not really the things where we really want to know, which is how much are we allowing the individual neurons to survive? Absolutely. The trouble is that, unfortunately, we are at a state where uh, not to insert a 
at intracranial vault would be deemed negligent. So there, I think we are in a situation where, again, I think perhaps, as I say, perhaps need to go back to the chestnut study in pediatrics. It's a difficult question to ask, really. And once we have that number, when the bolt is in, then what do we do about it? That's that's really hard to know sometimes. Uh, let's hear um, what Roddy had to say, and then we'll chat some more afterwards. So at the 2023 PCCS conference, uh, I'm sat with Roddy O'Kane, who's a consultant neurosurgeon from Glasgow. Um, he's given us a very entertaining talk on the management of ICP. So welcome, Roddy. Thank, Thank you very much. You. Thanks, Patrick. Yeah. Um, you went through through lots of the principles of managing ICP, um, and it's based around a case, isn't it, of a very severe um, TBI, and we ended up with a Im- very impressively large decompressive craniectomy. Um, we'll get on to decompressive craniectomies later on, but the principles are really important in TBI, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, as, I, as I alluded to in the talk, is that there's actually very little, um, you know, uh, objective science that's directing what we're doing. We're doing sort of an expert-based opinion. And I think you have to be conscious of that, that there isn't a rule, it's not a black and white science in anything that we actually do. And actually the most important thing for me, from what I've experienced, is you do it as a team. You don't do it as a neurosurgeon. You know, I'm, I'm highly dependent on PICU staff to help me and actually educate me about the rest of the body. The interface between between neurosurgeons and the rest of the world is, has, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a stereotype, isn't it? But... Um, but neurosurgeons are stereotypically, their communication and their interaction can be challenging. Um, what are your top tips for, uh, um, for neurosurgical interaction? So uh, I wouldn't disagree with you, and I think hopefully a lot of that has been put to bed by history. Um, but, you know, in the era of me training, did I become, uh, come across neurosurgeons who were intolerant, assholes, egotistical? Yep, that's an absolute. They thought they were God, and they thought they could run the show by themselves. I think the modern generation has known that that is a pile of nonsense, and I would hope that that, um, you know, the, the sort of picture that is painted, uh, the caricature uh, will hopefully become redundant over time. How do you deal with it? I think you deal with it like anybody else. Uh, mutual respect, realise that actually everybody's a valuable member of a team and from the way of the porter, the whole way right up to picker staff, to all the advanced nurse practitioners, physios, OTs, everybody is involved, everybody has a valid opinion and often can contribute a hell of a lot more than I ever can. Um, I think um, that one of the difficulties with TBI management is, is frustration. I get hugely frustrated because that's the first phase of stabilisation and that's all drama and, and, and excitement and we're doing stuff and we're intubating and CO2 controlled and all that stuff. And then there's a phase of essentially waiting and watching the ICP and getting more and more scared about the patients. And we can tweak stuff, but there's nothing big we can do anymore. I find that that phase incredibly frustration, and there's a temptation to turn to you guys and say, "Come on, sort it out." When you, when you do, when you have no weapons either. Yeah, that that is very correct. And as I talked about in my lecture, entire head injury management is basically based around intracranial pressure and trying to adjust that. I mean, that is all we have. That is, I mean, it, it sounds ludicrous. Why we haven't got drug agents and things that are neuroprotective, uh, specifically for brain trauma. That's where all this science, we need to, you know, ICP is one target, but we need to move, you know, I hope the science can evolve to start looking at many more objectives. 
but also the ICP target, as I talk about, it's not very strong evidence base. And often you will find when people don't know what to do, rather than own up to it, is actually maintain a status quo position of suspended animation with people on highly toxic drugs, completely anaesthetized, completely paralyzed. And there has to be incredible stupidity in that, in one sense, it doesn't make fundamental, you know, keeping people asleep for certain periods of time with no evidence to do it. You try to drag the, the ICP, but you have to be aware that starting to use things like vasopressors and lots of heavy anesthetics is quite a toxic thing. So don't, you know, it's easy for a neurosurgeon to say, do that because we feel we're not really taking the responsibility. It's you guys will prescribe and push the buttons. But I don't think I would certainly want that done to my child. And I think, you know, we de you know, my default position is when I don't know what to do is lighten them up and see what the kid's doing. All right, CP management is fascinating because it's, it's something which makes intuitive sense, right? So for flow, there has to be a delta pressure. And there's no delta pressure, there can't be flow. I mean, that just makes sense. Um, rivers don't flow on the flats, they flow downhill. So if, there's, if there is no or, or reduced delta pressure over the brain, then therefore intuitively there's, there's reduced, reduced or no flow of blood and therefore um, there's no nutrients and oxygen. So it makes, it, it makes intuitive sense. But the evidence is frustratingly hard to find, come by, or the studies to do. Um, or, or maybe it doesn't work. Yeah, I, I, the literature, and particularly in the paediatric setting, is, 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 is strongly, strongly lacking. As you know, the, the old, you know, the old saying that, that we would use in the paediatric setting, you know, children are not young adults. You know, they're very different, uh, and they are very different in their physiology. And you've got to recognise that. That you know, whilst we have guidelines and brain trauma foundation. The, the evidence that they are using and picking generic numbers trying to turn this science into binary does not make logical sense. You know, we, we, you know, we are a normal Gaussian curve in all of our physiology and anatomy, um, but trying to turn us all into you know, to a unified binary number of what acceptable is not. Um, I have uh, an interest in intracranial pressure and have had for quite a long time, both over trauma but also in hydrocephalus. And so I kind of, I nearly become sort of anaesthetic. I start to understand things because I start reading the physiology side as, a, as opposed to what a surgeon would tend to look at. So I try to look at things like pulse pressure. Um, I, I look at, um, the, you know, what is the clinical picture? What does the scan tell me? What was the mechanism? How old is the child? I mean, what is an ICP? What is the normal in an under two? Nobody knows. What is in an under five? Nobody knows. So everything's made up. So you've got to work with a team you've got to say to your, your picky colleagues you know let's face it we don't know what we're doing here are we actually making the child sicker by trying to simplify something or can we make common sense prevail and that's actually that's where you've got to take the decision nearly to, to sort of stop treatment wake up the child and see and then assess if that's failed let's go back to some numbers games but be very precautionary about what we do. That has to be a team game. It can't be any other way. Um, the, the effect of all the drugs we give is significant, isn't it? Um, one of my principles is drugs are bad, and, we, and these are big drugs which are very bad. They're, also, they're not only bad for the brain, they're also cardiotoxic, and there's all the, the blood pressure effects, and then you start inotropes, and you can run in circles and circles. 
Um, so the minimum possible is what we should be doing. But then there's great reluctance sometimes to wake the patient up because destabilizing them is scary. Yeah, that, that is correct. And you have to remember, you've got to look where, where you are coming from. You know, I'm a neurosurgeon and, 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 and I suppose in the head trauma side, I've been trained. I don't understand what goes below the chin and I have zero interest in it in one sense. So it's simple to tell the people who are dealing with the rest of the body what to do, you know, uh, and, and keep my numbers happy. But it's not a numbers game. And you've got to recognise you are giving huge toxic drugs to people that may not need it. And that has always got to be the question, am I actually doing them more harm? I always have a paranoia as that day two, three stage, if you're you know hanging around here in this suspended animation part where the, you have a child completely flattened and paralyzed, once them vasopressors come out, I question what are we doing? Because the physiology of the body is always going to be more clever than any neurosurgeon or any doctor or any scientist. And sometimes the body will be sorting itself and we're counteracting that. ICP management uh, is, is also tricky because it, it only measures the pressure at the, at the tip of the line, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. I mean obviously, um, that's what it does. Um, but that tip can be in different places. And... Whenever we have a patient whose ICP we don't like, the, the debate starts. How much of that is brain and how much of that is the, the tip of the line being somewhere odd? Yeah, so first of all, you know, the idea of, of pressure, and it's, remember, it's, it's fluid, it's fluid physics we're talking about. Your brains are not a Newtonian fluid, and there's lots of different compartments. And whilst they may have communication under high pressure, they may not. So the whole philosophy of trying to use simplified physiology and, and the laws of physics and fluid uh, dynamics is actually a bit rubbish. So you've got to, you're absolutely right, when you get things that you're not liking and then starting to augment or try to follow to treat that with, you know, very, very brutalizing therapy, you've got to question are you doing more harm. ICP being a number, I think, is, I think these days will disappear. I think there is data coming out, but it's always going to be in the adult side. And again, it's never going to be in the children's side. And translating adult to children, particularly as there are so many different characteristics of children as they're evolving from zero to 16, they are all we different populations. You've got to be so careful. So I always say paranoia and remember, don't over-treat and think of what you can do when you don't know what to do. Stop doing things and observe. There's a whole bunch of studies coming out hopefully soon, Starship Kids Brain IT, which are looking at not just ICP, but also the secondary and tertiary waveforms and, yeah. and um, of variability. How much scope is there to, from those studies? So again, I think if you actually look at this science, it is going to be relatively basic. It's not going to transform the world. You know, uh, looking at autoregulation and peer pressure reactivity index, these types of things are fascinating. But do they translate really into, are we really getting better outcomes? How are we measuring the outcomes? Are we using GOS, GOS extended PEDS? Are we actually talking about quality of life in a much more advanced, you know, psychological way and physical assessment? And the problem with trials and trying to run them over a long time, because you've got a developing brain growing over time, what time do we set? You know, you know adults would conventionally set six months, one year, two years. That, that's not relevant in a two-year-old or a five-year-old child because they're still an evolving brain. 
Thankfully, it's the evolving brain that actually probably gets us a better outcome because they're probably you know, able to, to take a, a stronger insult. Uh, and whilst we can all pretend to take the praise that we have done something good, it's probably the kid that have done all the hard work. Yeah. The body's much more clever than we are, isn't it? The patient who had had a decompressive craniectomy and a very impressive one, actually, it was, um, was half the head, wasn't it? Um, and did ex- extremely well. Now, the evidence for decompressive craniectomy, rescue ICP, those kind of studies, they are somewhat controversial. But I think it's becoming harder and harder to not do it. Yeah, so it, it's quite funny. I, I, was about, I was in the middle of my training and recruited actually quite a lot of people into rescue ICP. And it was a great trial. Uh, and actually, as we started doing more decompressive craniectomies, we got people out of ITU faster. That's just a fact, and it's actually you know, represented in the literature. Now, remember, again, this isn't really dedicated to the pediatric setting, but I suppose if you're following that principle, I like it. I don't like toxic drugs. Uh, I like to move people out of the ITU. It's a dangerous place where we do dangerous things. And I'm not saying that taking a skull off is an innocent procedure, <laughs> but the funny part about when the trial came out you would have me who stood intuitively thinking, I think it's probably a good thing to do um, for, for the multitude of things that can happen, particularly toxic therapies. I had equally half of my colleagues who would sit on the other side of the fence and the trial came out and literally we all piled into work in the same morning and we were using the same data to stand and fight with each other. It's so, so in one sense, it didn't answer because the people who are against it, and there is logical reason, it's not a small procedure, it is barbaric, um, but they would argue that it wasn't changing outcomes or whichever argument they proposed, and I was arguing to the counter. Um, uh, so it, it, it hasn't sorted the question, and also bearing in mind, it is the adult population we were dealing with. I would do anything to get a kid out of intensive care. I don't mean to offend you, but you guys can give lethal things, very toxic agents, and often under the instruction from us in one sense. But my philosophy is that, um, and that I, I, I think decompressing, and it must be big. Small decompressions are of no value. It's a useless operation. One of the things which we talk about um, with patients with decompressive craniectomies is it's difficult to stop. The um, terrible outcome for the closed brain is coning, and that's a digital outcome, isn't it? Yeah. Um, with a patient with decompressive craniectomy, it's like getting worse and worse and worse, and that brain is, is destructive and destroying itself. Coning is much harder to do for the patients. Yeah. This sounds really, you know, judgmental and, and strange, but h- how does a child die at that point? Um, so this is the, 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 the moral conundrum, isn't it, is looking at the other end. Um, am I going to be pushing people who would not have survived into an undignified uh, lifelong dependency? Um, and it's a very difficult question because when you're trying to deal with that with family or relatives at the, at the presentation, I would have people that say, no matter what, they will always uh, go, uh, you know, they, they will say, we will, we will nominate to save our child. I have to say, if you spend and you do have limited time, but remember, you do have minutes to a couple of hours to consent. 
I certainly will recall one 15-year-old child who I had offered decompressive craniectomy. The brain scan was of what you would call a diffuse axonal injury, but that child also had huge problems with temperature regulation and DI that give me an idea something is really bad. There is something to the dying cephalon here in the brain that's really going to, and I, I counsel them that I didn't think they would make any meaningful recovery or likely be dependent. That family declined the operation because they wanted dignity for their child. So you have to involve families and you have to sit and talk and, and, and educate them. It's, it's, a, it's an argument that you can stand on either side of a fence of where you, you know, what are we doing? Are we accruing costs to society with dependent children? How to make a, a rule about it? You have to go with very intuitive gut feeling and believe me, you can get it wrong. And um, the ability to to achieve informed consent, and the word informed is the key here, of what the risks are to the lifelong um, outcome of the child and what a, what a severe di- disability actually means, which almost no fam- families really know. But that's so difficult at the sharp end. I, I think it, it, it's, it, it's nigh on impossible. Uh, you have to try to talk to people on a human level. You have to be honest and explain what, you know, they would often pose the question, what would you do? And you can use experience. I have young children myself. uh, And, you know, the example I quoted um, where they didn't elect, I said, I probably wouldn't do it myself. But I, you know, I don't have any evidence base to base my decision. Um, You know, I don't know whether I am right or wrong in these. I have to just be truthful and also tell the parents that we don't know. And that you know we, we can, we can you know leave a, you know a population of people with you know profound damage and very dependent that changes a family's life, um, and they've got to know the sort of implications. But you know, is it a true informed consent? It's as best as you can do in an acute situation. But is it certainly different to elective type of procedures? Of course. But some of the outcomes are truly extraordinary of these patients who who come in and they just look desperately sick and the scan's awful. And then after some weeks, they come and knock on our door and have a wander around. They've got no idea who we are. And we're all lauding them and are slightly emotional on our part. And they're just completely fine. Yeah, yeah, you're very correct. But again, this, this comes down to two things. You know, when we hear the adult population they're they're not a moving target a child has a growing brain and and so they, they have an, there's something actively going with them and they would use the word rewiring or plasticity and i it, it has to be something like that so they tend to potentially do better we've no way to assess or or, or measure that in one sense um, and I sometimes think that our great results are probably really down to the child itself as opposed and, and, and what is you know a, a child's brain injury as opposed to an adult in one setting. Thank you so much, Roddy. Um, so my final question, we've been talking now for 19 and a half minutes. When's the last time you spoke to someone for 19 and a half minutes without swearing? Uh, in a pub. <laughs> no, in a chapel. <laughs> Um, thank you so much. It's really great um, to talk to you. Thank you so much. It's been a great conference. A pleasure to come and speak. You're a great group. Uh, you know, we've got to work together and move forward. Any type of trials anybody has, uh, you know, I'd imagine we should all be collaborating and working together. So lovely to be part of your community today. Thank you. So that was fun. And uh, we managed to 
but to limit himself, I think, just to one minor swear word for the whole recording, which was impressive. He must have found it very difficult to sort of uh, suppress those urges to <laughs> I think, be I think entertaining. So. Uh, but it's, he feels like a really great guy to work with. Um, he's someone who clearly respects the whole team. And I loved how he was talking about how important the whole team is from from ground up. But that's incredibly important. We go past our our prejudices, and that we can we can work really well as a wider team. I think that that was the being very being very inclusive was a, a really great sign. And I think he was he he seems like a person who would have a great time working with because he was very happy to take advice and very happy to listen to others. And I think that's a a really great person to work with. Some of the other talks at the meeting. We talked about incivility and how civility saves lives, that being respectful, being polite to to each other actually has significant effects on the workings of the team and therefore on the on the outcomes to our patients. And that's a message message throughout, isn't it? If you don't listen to your team, then things are going to go worse. I think that sense of arrogance is what uh, leads to problems, not only in terms of clinical management, but also breakdown of communication between colleagues right. and breakdown of communication with families. And we're all um, at risk of that as as people who look after these very sick, sick patients. We need to constantly check ourselves, don't we? But showed us a scan picture of, uh, of one of his patients. It was a 3D reconstruction of a skull post-decompressive craniectomy. And as um, he said in the talk, there's no point in doing it half-heartedly. Well, he's certainly not half-hearted. <laughs> He really takes out a huge amount of bone. And that, to me, actually makes sense because you don't want to do half a job when you're trying to release pressure. But um, he basically, he does a hemi hemicraniectomy. But if you're going to do it, I think it probably makes sense. It does. I think the, the alternative is the, the analogy with the toothpaste. And if you make a tiny little hole with the ICP rising, you may get a situation where you get a bit of herniation of the brain through that mini hole. And I think that's the reason why perhaps removing a large flap, I think it's probably a more practical and perhaps more useful. This is coming from a, a physician, but I think that the surgeons probably agree now that the, removing a larger flap perhaps has a better outcome. Yeah, um, that makes that makes logical sense. I don't know how, um, how that's based in evidence, but in the same way as ICP would make sense, then this would, would make sense as well, wouldn't it? The thing that I quite enjoyed reading recently is a paper that you and your colleagues uh, wrote in uh, Pediatrics and Child Health on the management of ICP, which has not only got fantastic physiology of ICP, how to provide emergency management of major head injury. And I think the pre-hospital care emergency department care, et cetera, is really fantastic. And then there is obviously the first-line management in the PICU. It's really, you, you've done a fantastic job. And this could become a, a standard sort of a guideline for majority of ICUs, in fact. Yeah, um, we try to keep it pretty pretty um, pragmatic as well. And we worked a lot on the um, figure two, which is sort of the, the principles behind these things. I try to make it clear what we're doing and why we're doing each step. We're quite pleased to be able to simplify it to those terms. Maybe a, th- a third paper is being uh, being talked about uh, 
but this was the, the second paper in a series, and we're just thinking about the third one as well. Um, so that one's called Managing Raised Intracranial Pressure in Pediatric Brain Injury and came out in Pediatrics and Child Health this month, I think. Well, the principles behind this management are pretty pretty pragmatic, but I think if we just stick to first principles, um, then that's, that's all we can do. What's interesting is, Patrick, that uh, things really haven't changed in the last 40 years. We're good clinical care, making sure that you don't overload these patients, make sure their, ox- their oxygen saturations are fine, make sure the hemoglobin is okay, and you sedate them and sit it out and see what happens in 48, 72 hours. Don't you agree? I mean, this is there is very little major change in head injury management. Yes, that's true. And I find that frustrating as well. I find it frustrating that you do all, all these things, you look after the detail, and then you just wait. And I find that deeply frustrating. Um, and that's, I think, when some of the robust discussions happen between neurosurgeons and physicians, because everyone wants something to happen, and everyone wants something to do. And yet we just have to sit there and watch. And that's really hard to do nothing. And even though we're doing a huge amount of things, but we're not changing anything, we we just then then have the status quo, and then we hope that after 48, 72 hours, then things are going to get better. I agree. Okay, great. Well, that was that was fun talking to Roddy, and uh, a shame you couldn't be there. Uh, maybe next time. Next time. Um, and until next time. Fantastic, Patrick. Lovely talking to you. Thank you.